On this episode of The Grow Show, VentureBeat's editor-in-chief interviews Harvard Business Review's group publisher. But I'd be happy if we were able to transcend that business and have everything be, you know, supported by content that we were offering to people that they actually wanted and valued enough to pay for. We are right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Dylan Tweeney. I'm the editor-in-chief of VentureBeat, and I'm filling in for Mike today. And I've got a special guest for this special episode. This is Josh Macht, and he's the executive vice president and group publisher at the Harvard Business Review. Hey, Josh. How are you? It's good to see you. You too. So I don't know what they normally talk about on this podcast, but what I want to talk about is media and uh, digital media and growth and kind of how publications like yours and Venture Beats, for that matter, are, uh, are able to survive and thrive in the digital age. Sounds good. So let, let me just explain what I'm doing here in Boston first. I'm, uh, VentureBeat has a conference business, and one of the conferences we're doing this week is called the Growth Beat Summit. It's a small invite-only gathering of CMOs, um, which I think is why HubSpot is uh, interested in having us here. Um, and it's focused on marketing technology. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, we can, we can get into the, you know, the specifics of growth and stuff. But first, tell me, you know, you've been at the Harvard Business Review for 10 years now. Yep, that's right. How is it going? <laughs> it's been going pretty well. It's been going pretty well. We are uh, really now growing a much more integrated business with the print and digital together okay. and in a way that's very different from where we started. So what proportion of your business is digital versus print? at this point. <clears throat> it's really tough to tell now because it's so integrated. If you look at, say, advertising, online is about 60% of that at this point. So uh-huh. it's really shifted. Uh-huh. So many of the starts to the magazine, meaning the new subscribers, come from the website. It's probably the most important source that we have. Yeah. But the businesses are really interwoven together, and it's the press, our books, the magazine, and the website together. So it's sort of three businesses working together. Okay, so that's an unusual thing and that you're not like other digital publishers and that you have actual books. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Are you finding people moving to ebooks in that? Yeah, absolutely. People have moved to ebooks, but I think, you know, the percentages they vary depending on publishers. We're around the same at around, you know, 20-30% of of any given book might maybe ebook sales. Okay. But people still like the physical book. It's what we're finding is the book itself can be enhanced with tools with different ways to implement the ideas that we might be publishing. That's probably especially true for a business book, which, you know, use what you publish, where people are reading it because they want to get specific advice yeah. or insights. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So, um, so uh, it's interesting because, I mean, you've been involved in several, intri- you know, kind of cool growth businesses, right? You were the editor mm-hmm. of, uh, of Time.com mm-hmm. that's before, right. yep. before Harvard. And uh, we were both at Business 2.0 That's uh, right. magazine yep. before that, which was an awesome magazine for those of you who, who missed it. <laughs> uh, sort of sadly shut down before its time. But um, so what, I, I mean, do, do you feel like uh, th- things have changed in terms, I mean, obviously things have changed in terms of digital publishing from when you were running Time.com in the early 2000s to running HBR now. 
Like, how would you characterize some of the differences? Right. Well, I mean, there. This is a great topic for us to get into, and I'm curious to know more about how VentureBeat looks at this as well. I mean, the big difference clearly between a time and an HBR, right, is mass media versus niche. Hmm. But I think some of the same principles apply, which is early on for the web, you remember, I mean, we just went bigger is better, bigger is better. Yes. Even though we started to see the deteriorating rate of, of uh, prices in advertising. Yes. Uh, and then it became this question of, can you get to know your audience? Well, it feels like that's a little bit easier in a niche. Although I think with some of the data and analytics now, we're seeing that it's kind of something everyone can do. I'm sure you're thinking about it in AdventureBeat as well. Yes. So, I mean, for us, we're, I guess we're a niche publication. I mean, I think it would be fair to describe us as a, as a business technology trade publication um, mm -hmm. with mainstream aspirations. But what we're finding is, um, to, in order to defend the advertising business in particular, you have to have a very good demographic. You have to articulate that demographic clearly. Um, and then, you know, we also have a conference business and we're starting to build a research business. And both of those are like not necessarily um, mainstream friendly, right? That's right. So for us, we want to grow traffic, but we, you know, it's also important for us to be able to take those readers and say like, hey, you should sign up for a newsletter. Or once you have a newsletter, hey, maybe you'd be interested in buying this report for $99 or buying a ticket to our next event, um, you know, for $500 or whatever it is. And those kind of readers, you know, will be more successful at making that pitch if we've defined it and, and, and if we're attracting the right audience. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I, what I would add to that is you want to you want to be able to prove that this audience feels something about your content, that they're that they mm -hmm. are they're into it. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that was tough early on for us at HBR because there was a sense of, well, this is, you know, management wonkery and, you know, mm -hmm. how how emotionally connected can you get to it? We started something very early on called Management Tip of the Day, which has grown to, to reach um, you know, nearly a million people. And it's something where we hear from people all the time. I love that. I look forward to that. It's a gateway into the content, but it was something that could just quickly touch you. you know? and, and, and I think what we realized is that a lot of these ideas people get excited about. And what you mm -hmm. want to be able to show your advertisers is that they really feel like they're passionate about this. They use it. They, they, it's viral in that in that way. Is this an email thing that they it, it send it's, a, it's been it started out <laughs> that way, and then it's part of our whole kind of multi-platform where it started as an email app. Now it's a book oh, um, wow. because you know we're trying to make th the the book division you know get the benefits of the web as well. So right. once we could see the popularity of it, it was easy to create a book that you could then sell into retail channels because right. people knew it. Right. They said, oh, that's cool. I'm glad it's a book now. That's cool. Um, so that also ties to the multi-platform piece. Right. So when you say it reaches a million people per day, that's between the email all, and the app. Everything. everything. Book, okay. every, you know, it, all things told up. It's a little tough to, to calculate, yeah. but I'd put it around there. Okay. Um, tell me how social fits into your strategy. That's been huge, huge for us in, in surprising ways. Um, even for me and, and, you know, having been part of magazines bringing them online since the early 1990s. I was surprised at the reception of HBR on places like Twitter and Facebook. I thought early on, especially in 2008, 2009, 2010, I thought, is our audience really there? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that, you know, our base of, of, uh, of, of folks on Twitter, for example, we can tell them about a webinar that we have a mm -hmm. few days in advance, and we will get 
you know, executive vice president, senior vice presidents, top executives coming from Twitter to a webinar. So we, we could really prove, and it's a little bit like you said before, they'll start interacting with us there. They might come to a webinar and then they register. So we get to know them a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then we're starting to, you know, market to them more effectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I'd like to ask you some questions about the business, um, if, if you're willing to answer them. Uh, but what, can you t- tell us kind of how big your audience is and what the, what the demographics are? Sure. Uh, it's, the audience has grown quite a bit. We're now um, reaching you know, around 4 or 5 million unique visitors per month on the website. Cool. But our paid base of subscribers, which had traditionally been around two hundred thousand, is now around three hundred thousand. That's that's for the the print um, that's for HBR. the HBR exactly. It's what we call all access. So mm-hmm. they get you know tablet, um, phone, everything together plus the archive. Mm-hmm. And we're adding new elements to that all the time, which I can talk about. But that subscriber base is um, is growing. You know, we hope to north of three hundred thousand, which we've never never oh. really done before. And what does that cost? To subscribe, um, it's a, the domestic is around ninety nine dollars, okay. um, and we're always testing, kind of adding new things and yeah. what that price can be. Let me just add uh, for the for those listeners who who might be the the three listeners who don't know about the HBR archive, but the archive is really valuable. It's right. unlike most publications because it's filled with all these great case studies. That's right. So um, so that's something that might in itself be worth. That's exactly right. And so we've taken the website and and our new site, we try and optimize on that. So it's my library functionality, creating Mm. reading lists. We want to add more and more functionality to let people kind of manage that content and put Mm -hmm. it to use in their organizations. Because as you said, that that's really the heart of it's, it's so important. Mm -hmm. The magazine itself, the flagship is critical, but uh, you know, every month we're adding to that archive. Yeah. Um, so is the business self-sustaining or does Harvard uh, foot the bill? That's a common misconception. <laughs> Thanks for asking. That. Um, no, it is a, it's completely a self-sustaining business. We are an independent subsidiary of the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have been growing quite a bit, which is fantastic. We've been able to you know, add resources. And I think it's the power of the, the books and the magazine, the digital together, yeah. that took a while for us to figure out. But once we did... We've really seen growth there, and we're moving into some new areas as well. This is interesting. I think there must be something in the water in Cambridge because MIT Technology Review, which you know sure, Jason yeah. Watson, I'm sure they're great, runs um, is also sort of in, under the institutional umbrella of <laughs> MIT, <laughs> up the river from you guys, right, or down the river, <laughs> sure, whatever. Um, but uh, but is also um, self-sustaining. That's as right. a, you know, economically, it, it pays its own way. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting model for an institution because. You know they don't have to, you know, they don't have to allocate budget to you, but they get the sort of cachet and the it's exact- exposure and the reach that you, you generate. Yeah, in fact, quite the opposite. Our um, our contribution is goes back into the school and feeds their research budget. So it's actually quite important. Wow. Wow. Um, and we your profit center. We we are we we pay back, and our dean is the is the shareholder. And uh, I've been in some big public companies, but I'm always a little bit more. You know, I want to make sure we're always when you have one you shareholder. You have one shareholder. Wow. You can see them. You can look at them. You want to perform. Um, like, How is that? Yeah. Exactly. How's the exactly. dividend looking this quarter? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but uh, but uh, what I'll say is that we've been able to do it and invest at the same time, and it's been really exciting because it is difficult. I think a lot of times the problem in, in media is we get into a situation where it's difficult to you sort of need a quick hit 
Mm-hmm. You know, you need somehow the web to that. That's the way it was years ago. You and you, you remember this is that. Yeah. You're not growing in any methodical way. You just are sort of saying, like, we have to hold on to our traditional business, and we have sort of quickly have to figure out the web. We've been able to kind of slowly but surely make our way. It sounds like VentureBeat is kind of doing some of the same things where you've been around for a while, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we were founded in 2006 by uh, Matt Marshall, yeah. who was a, a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News at the time. And he was doing a blog. It was called Silicon Beat, and it was about venture investments in Silicon Valley. And the Merck at the time was like, ah, we don't really know what to do with this blog business. Mm-hmm. And Matt was like, I think this could be really huge. And they were like, fine, if you want to take the blog, you can go do it on your own. And so he started blogging as a one-man operation just out of his, uh, his bedroom, I think. Wow. Um, and by 2007, he took a small amount of funding, a very small amount of angel funding, and was able to add a couple writers. But since then, it has grown entirely on the revenues that the website has generated, and then after a couple of years of uh, the event business. Right. So for us, it's been basically you know website advertising and sponsorships, and event sponsorships and ticket sales. Um, I think that model, what we have found is like it it has been quite self sustaining. I mean, we reach about seven million people mm-hmm. a month now um, across a couple different platforms, mostly our website, but. Um, uh, and our events, we do six a year, and, you know, they tend to be small and kind of vertically focused. They're, they're not huge, you know, 10,000-person conferences. They're smaller. Um, that's been a good business for us. It's ma- enabled us to remain independent um, and grow uh, pretty steadily over the past however many years that was. But, um, but I think what we found is, you know, to achieve bigger growth than that, we needed something else. But you can't really sure. scale the event business. Yeah, of course. Uh, traffic and advertising is unpredictable. I mean, the traffic grows slowly, but advertising, you know, they're volatile. In the four years that I've been there, there have been good years and there have been horrible years. Yeah, sure. So you can't really trust it. So uh, so we started building a research business mm-hmm. last year um, and took a small round of funding to, um, to help build that out. And we're hoping that, you know, this will be sort of selling very data-driven, um, in-depth reports, starting with a focus on marketing technology, um, because that's an area where uh, where there's a lot of interest, a lot of confusion, and way too many companies yeah. competing. Interesting. Um, but we'll expand that to focus on other areas. And the hope is, you know, we have this 7 million person audience. The demographics are very good. They tend to be business leaders or high-level executives. They have budgets. Um, you know, the hope is that we can funnel those people into, um, you know, or, you know, encourage them to purchase uh, research or purchase subscriptions to our research in the same way that we've been able to use yeah. our site to funnel people into uh, into buying event tickets. That makes a lot of sense. Now, the story sounds vaguely familiar to uh, you know Recode and, and uh, GigaOM. And yeah. What do you take from <laughs> yeah. the two very good different tales? It's very similar to the GigaOM model because GigaOM was a website that yeah. also had events, re- excellent events, and uh, research, a, a big research business. I think, um, and then Recode is a, you know an event-driven primarily business. Um, they have a, a fantastic website. They get all kinds of news. Sure. I mean, Kara gets scoops like, Kara Swisher gets scoops like nobody's business. Yep. Um, and she has a fantastic team. Here's my takeaway. Those are different businesses from what VentureBeat is doing. I think GigaOM, uh, in retrospect, it's I, a lot of people have, have uh, look, looked at the business and felt like its cost structure was just way out mm-hmm. of whack. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so great idea, but maybe not the best execution um uh in recode's case you know they they just recently sold to um 
to Vox Media, the parent of The Verge, and, and some other sites. Hmm. I, you know, my take is that when, and I wrote a column about this, um, when you sell just 18 months after you founded a company, generally that's not a, a win. That's a sign that, you know, <laughs> that like you or your investors don't feel confident that you can continue to grow the business really aggressively, right? Mm -hmm. I think what, what happened is this, is the conference business is not real scalable. Code, uh, Recode does a fantastic conference. I was just there last week, actually, the Code, uh, code Conference oh, yeah. um, in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. It's a fantastic high-level conference, all kinds of great attendees. Um, but you can't scale that because by definition, it's a scarce resource. Right. If you did six of those conferences, they would, you know, the level of the attendees would drop off because, you know, um, whoever they, they attract, Marissa Meyer or, you know, um, right. you know is not going to come to six of them. She's only going to come to one. Right. So you can't scale that. And uh, also, I think they, you know, they didn't have great traffic out of the gate. And, you know, I, don't, I think they focused on the conference business to the to the exclusion sure. of the of the website business. So it kind of makes more sense for them to be inside a larger organization. Yeah. So I think it'll be more complimentary. Well, the events business itself is an interesting one. We do a fair amount of webinars and we've tried to stay focused on areas where maybe others just it's not as easy for them to come into or or areas that play to our strengths might be the other way. So we do yep. a lot of uh, we took How I Did It from the magazine, which was a basically a CEO talking about something that they've accomplished and brought that to a live webinar. Oh, cool. Um, so it so really, you actually talk to the CEO? So we do, yeah. Andy Taylor from Enterprise Rental Car talked a lot about the culture as they did their acquisitions, for example. And then you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our editor-in-chief and the CEO, and it brings to life those lessons. And we like to feel as though it's, it's something that we can get from CEOs something that they, they, they maybe wouldn't say to all audiences because they really feel comfortable under our brand. Right. And that, that we're looking for that unique something to bring people to is always difficult. I mean, you're trying to do the same with VentureBeat. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. It's absolutely a challenge. I, I, you know, I'll be honest, there, you know, in, in VentureBeat's case, there are a lot of tech news publications out there, right? Sure. So for us to differentiate and say, like, here's what we've got that's unique and that's different, um, it can be challenging to articulate that. Yeah, definitely. No question. Do you guys do real world events too? Uh, <coughs> some of these webinars are, so we'll bring, you know, a uh, hundred people to a breakfast and hmm. we'll have a real event and then we'll, uh, you know, we'll do a couple of cameras on it. So it's streaming as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we have done bigger events, but, uh, more sporadically. So we did a big 90th anniversary with a, you know, sort of a number of big thought leaders, Clay Christensen, Rosabeth Moscander, mm. and others kind of came and, and, and uh, uh, with Howard Schultz and other CEOs to talk about big issues. Mm -hmm. um, we're always thinking about ways to kind of invade that larger stage right now. The smaller events actually have worked quite well for us. Cool. Um, although we have recently done some bigger things in Mexico and we're planning to do some things outside of the United States. Mexico. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. Because so. you have an international audience to begin with. I'm we sure. do. We do. And we have about 11 local language editions around the world in uh, China, India, all over Europe, Italy, Germany, one of our largest France. Um, so we do have a, we have this global audience, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes with our local partners, for instance, we'll do events in China mm -hmm. or we'll partner with the school has a Shanghai center a research center there. So we might do something there as well. Okay. So, uh, you mentioned Recode and GigaOM. There's, there's a couple other, um, you know, sort of recent things that are happening in the tech media world, right? AOL got, 
uh, is getting bought by Verizon. Yeah. Um, there are companies, you know, not, not necessarily Exits, but there are companies out there like, um, you know, Vox Media or Vice Media, mm-hmm. which are raising just piles of money. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like either like a sense of relief that you're not in that fray or a sense of envy that you're not, uh, not on the receiving end of these piles of capital? Um, I don't know. You probably feel a bunch of things, uh, a, a range of emotions on both sides. I do think it's really exciting. Uh, many of these, um, many of the startups from BuzzFeed and the ones you mentioned and others. BuzzFeed, yeah. It's, it's, it's phenomenal to watch, to watch the growth. And you sort of look to say to see because as you and I both know, we've seen a number of these yes. media properties kind of come and then yep. they go. I do think there's something incredibly interesting about what BuzzFeed has done with the model around sponsor content, making things yep. viral yep. in a way that we all have to learn from. That may be the biggest takeaway for me is that we're not so removed from those big those splashy startups and that there are some lessons mm-hmm. you know but we're trying to build sustainable growth over time mm-hmm. and when you have that as your ultimate goal and you're not looking to be bought you have to think about the organization everything you have to think about it in a different way it, it's great in some ways it's incredibly exhausting but um, but I really look to most of those companies and think like long and hard about what are the things they're doing that that makes sense for us yeah so uh, when you mentioned the boom and bust, I just remember the industry standard, right? Which raised a that ton was of fun. money. Yeah, they had fan they had fantastic rooftop parties. We did, and uh, you were involved, right? Oh yeah, I was yeah. there for a short time. It was great. And then uh, it got very thick, the magazine, at one point, and then it like it seemed like overnight it just evaporated. Yeah, I mean those were the that was the you know the early uh, evolution, right? Where it was just the this creature that exploded overnight, all of a sudden had a huge magazine. And uh, a lot of that money coming from venture capitalists, mm-hmm. we joke that maybe they should just pay us directly um, <laughs> through these little companies. Yep. Um, but you know, it, the early on, we hadn't really figured out the integration of print and web yet. That that was like. Wait, I'm sorry. Back up for a second. You were saying that little venture funded companies were buying advertising in the industry oh, yeah. standard, and oh, that's yeah. what made you guys so big. Oh, it was a big part. Of venture <laughs> venture capital spent was a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. You know that you know if you can remember the fax machine, the orders would come over it like crazy, and yeah. the, the magazines just would explode. You know, became huge phone book overnight. Yeah, yeah. And then what did the industry standard spend its money on besides rooftop parties? It seemed well. I left, so I wasn't there all that long. But it uh-huh. seemed like real estate was a big thing for them. They uh-huh. they were just you know it was one of those things you couldn't keep up with. All of a sudden, yeah. you're in San Francisco at the height of the boom, leasing space. So it was, uh, it was kind of a crazy time. Real estate. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out, when you're in a boom, what yeah. position do you want to uh, be on? Where does the money actually end up? And I, it sounds like real estate, which is certainly <laughs> the case in San Francisco right now. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so fast forward to the current uh, you know, venture-funded media company boom. Um, I, I mean, my instinct is that this can't last forever. The venture funding is going to dry up eventually. Um, and that some of these companies are going to, some of these media companies are going to find that, or, or we're going to find that they're not actually self-sustaining. They were just venture capital sustained. So, right. you know, I mean, I don't know, do you, maybe you want to make a guess. You mentioned <laughs> that BuzzFeed seems like it has a good model. Do you feel like it's, you could pick winners and losers? I don't losers know. This soon? I don't know that I could pick winners and losers. I do think what's interesting. I, I mean, I think Certainly, the creating of the viral nature of advertising mm. um, is great. Although BuzzFeed certainly has a ton of competition now, so that's you know, and it, they're they're not 
totally by themselves, and that's going to put pressure on pricing. I think other models where you see people trying to, to work with uh, cable companies and move into kind of some of the higher-end content. I think create, that's Vice's approach. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's incredibly interesting because, you, you know, you do see them moving to a place where the revenue per user can be much, much higher than just a lot of these web businesses. And I think what people are realizing is how do we make this web business complement something else? And how do we either get acquired, acquire, or build it ourselves? And that's going to take time. I couldn't guess on which one of these companies is going to make it or not, but I know it's going to be really interesting to watch. It will certainly be interesting. <laughs> um, when when you're looking uh, towards the future, like what do you? How do you see you know the next couple of years playing out for HBR? Yeah, well, I think for us, clearly, you know, there's there's room to grow in a lot of different areas. For sure, we haven't done all that much with events. We have a smaller within HBR. We have a smaller uh, research group as well that's mm -hmm. doing some interesting that's doing some interesting work. Um, also, our company is bigger. The HBR group is just a part of our company. There's a corporate learning division and higher ed, and those places of the company are also online education is, is growing. Oh, yeah. Incredibly. Absolutely. Lots of very interesting things happening on that front. So I think you'll see more from us in those areas as well. Okay, so you might provide content to, you know, online course sure. makers or things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, for us, I think we're going to be, you know, obviously growing this research business. I think, um, you know, there's, there's uh, because we cover technology and we're so tech focused, we have to be on top of the latest platforms. And, you know, we don't have an app right now, but we'll have an app. We'll have, yeah. you know, I, yeah. God knows, we'll probably have a smartwatch right. <laughs> uh, app eventually. Um, Do you see mobile as, I, I know we're probably going to be running out of time soon, but the, the mobile piece is fascinating. We've seen huge growth. I mean, you have to. Have... Mobile's huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right now, 40% of our readers are on mobile. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when we're thinking, for instance, we're doing some tweaks to our, our site design now. Mm -hmm. um, and mobile is first and foremost in that discussion. Yeah. Um, you know, we're also seeing, I think this is, this is maybe not novel, but a lot of uh, publishers have seen this. In contrast to the early days of the web, um, people don't come in through the front page as much. They mm -hmm. come into specific stories, and they're led there by Facebook mentions or Twitter mentions or yeah. LinkedIn is pretty strong for us yeah. um, uh, because it's a you know business-focused network. Um, or just people emailing things around, so mm -hmm. you maybe can't tell exactly what brings people in, but right. it, they come into specific stories much more than they come into the homepage. Yeah. So then the challenge as a publisher is to figure out how, you know, you're reading one story. How do we show you something else that you'll want, also want to read? How do we get you to read more than one story mm -hmm. or three stories? And then how do we, you know, say, oh, by the way, there's related research over here. Yeah. In a way that's not obnoxious, right? Yeah. It's really, you know, we, a lot of people refer to it as kind of the customer journey. And, right. and there's this whole question of, you know, how much should you be publishing within Facebook's world? And, you know, to me, someone said it very well where they said every piece of content is kind of a message in a bottle. Yeah. It's just sort of out there. Yeah. And I think it's hard because you have to manage your resources tightly, how much you're going to really spend on distribution of that content to these many different platforms versus enhancing your own. Yeah. Um, because you can't necessarily do everything and you sort of feel like you have to. Right. Um, so, you know, thinking through it, I think for us, the one big advantage is at the end of the day, 
about 70 or 75% of our revenue comes from paid content. Mm -hmm. So that's a book or a subscription or an you know, article. Mm -hmm. So thinking through what's the best way to start a really long-term relationship, you know, that we talked about the lifetime value of the customer. With you know, it's not necessarily quickly buy this. It's right. you know, you gotta you gotta ease into it a bit, you know. Right. And that is takes finesse. It takes time, but that's a lot of what we're trying to learn. It's exactly what you said. You don't want to be creepy. You don't want to suggest things to someone too soon. Right. That presuppose, and no one really knows how to do this very well. Even Amazon. I mean, where they're amazing at e-commerce. I think we're all sort of trying to learn how do you start a really long-term relationship. But just flipping it and looking at it that way, you know, might take some of the angst out of like, oh my God, I need you as a customer tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, that's, ex that's exactly the right attitude. I mean, we're, I think we're going through that transformation ourselves right now where, you know, we're building a funnel, right? We want to, right. we want to, you know, we're actually thinking of our website in funnel terms. Like, so we're, we're complete marketers now, but, um, but we want the end game of that is we want to build a relationship with, with the reader and we want to build something long term. I mean, for me, looking, you know, a couple of years out, I would be delighted if we could get rid of all those obnoxious, like, uh, sight skin ads and <laughs> pop-up interstitial ads and blinking automatic video playing things. I hate those. <laughs> I, yeah, I should take sure. that back, actually. I don't hate them because they pay the bills right now. Sure. And the advertisers often, you know, we, we, we're not, we won't take all comers, right? So they're right. relatively um, relevant. But I'd be happy if we were able to transcend that business and have everything be you know, supported by content that we were offering to people that they actually wanted and valued enough to pay for. Yep. And then we could just get rid of all the ads. Well, I think, I think you're right. I think another way to think about it, too, is that there's an idealized version, um, especially for folks, I guess, who grew up with the web and all the terrible ads that we, you know, that over the years. But I think where we're going is seeing that, wait, I can see people really want this content and these partners, these advertising partners really make sense. How do I weave them into the conversation in a way that's not annoying? Right. How do I do this in an artful way? How do I do right. it in an integrated way? But in a way that also preserves what my brand's trying to do. Well, I mean, it's important to make, for particularly as a publisher exactly. of news, uh, you know, or, or, or the HBR, you know, what you're publishing, we need to preserve that independence. Right. It has to be very, very clear that, yep. you know, advertisers can't dictate what we're saying. They don't have any control over what we write. That's right. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, you want their ads to be relevant. You want you know want you want those to be shaped for the audience. So yep, exactly. No, and that's that's the challenge. And I think I think we're getting there. And I I also think that things will evolve with platforms and with hardware as well to make reading um, more enjoyable online. Yeah. And that will change the advertising too. That's a really good point. I'm looking forward to that. So I think we're about out of time. Um, I'm going to thank the listeners for joining us for this episode of the Growth Show. If you head over to thegrowthshow.com, you can get on uh, the show's email list and get exclusive updates about the show and build a lasting relationship with the show. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> get other goodies like getting a sneak peek at our upcoming guests. So thank you for joining us. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Dylan20. That's Dylan20. And of course, you can find uh, everything that I write and all the other VentureBeat team write, people write at VentureBeat.com. Josh, uh, um, how do people reach you? Uh, they can reach me at at Macht, H-B-R, M-A-C-H-T, H-B-R, and online at hbr.org, as well as at Harvard Biz on Twitter. Great. Thank you so much for uh, a great conversation, Josh. Thanks for having me. All right, are we, are we done now? Is that okay? Thanks. <laughs>